Pack Box Talk, and this is Horse Stories with a Purpose. Who are we? We are equine educators, but we are owners. We are judges. We are competitors. We are coaches. We are volunteers. We are moms. We are horse owners just like you, and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose. Welcome to Extension Horses Tack Box Talk Series, Horse Stories with a Purpose. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Heine, and today we're going to be continuing our series uh, highlighting some of the recent research that was discussed at the 2023 Equine Science Symposium. So to discuss their favorite abstracts, or the ones they thought had the most impact uh, for horse owners, we have Dr. Danielle Smarsh uh, from Penn State University. Welcome back, Danielle. Thank you, Dr. Heine. Nice to be here. And also returning guest, Dr. Kathy Anderson from University of Nebraska. Welcome back, Kathy. Hey, hi. Glad to be here. All right. So, ladies, we're going to actually start with uh, one of Danielle's picks. Um, So she uh, wants to discuss a study that was looking at giving low doses of electrolyte supplementation to university horses, um, so maybe that makes a difference, um, that were in light to moderate exercise. All right, so Danielle, tell us a little bit about this study. Sure, so I like this talk and this abstract, and as you mentioned, university horses, but I thought it was interesting that they looked at horses, the key being light to moderate exercise. And as the authors, this was done down at Middle Tennessee State University, they pointed out, yes, we know for heavy exercise, extended hot humid periods of time, electrolytes are important. But what about those horses that are not ridden so intensely, um, like maybe many of us do? Um, and so they had a cohort of stock type horses and they gave them, um, and they had a control set and then a set that got the electrolytes. And they happened to just by dumb luck, pick a week in Tennessee where it was like hundred degrees. Oh, so, that's good. Worked out well for them. They're like, we did not plan, like, that's just how it happened. Um, And the horses were ridden every day through this heat wave. And um, they all had their normal diet of hay and a commercial concentrate. And then they assessed them for things like how much water they drank, um, how willing they were with their exercise. uh, And they looked at some blood parameters as well, like things like sodium, potassium, your electrolytes, basically, um, that you would find in these supplements. And the end result was that really there were not any differences. The big thing they found was that water intake, there was an effective day, which tracked with which day was the hottest. Um, Okay. So so horses drink more when it's hot. Are you telling this, this has been verified? So the hotter the day was, the more water all, both groups of horses drank. Uh, But otherwise um, there was no difference between their control group that did not receive the supplement and the treatment group. And so again, this was just a short term, one week gave the uh, the electrolyte every day, they were ridden every day. Um, And their suggestion was that, you know, these horses were getting a balanced diet of hay and a commercial concentrate. And so maybe that was, that was all they needed to cope with this lighter level of exercise for a few days during a heat wave. All right. So maybe you could help us out because I know you've got a a background in exercise physiology. So I think because horse owners are always worried about doing the best they can. And they know we say, hey, we need to maybe increase electrolytes when they're working. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people don't understand when we categorize things as light to moderate work versus what a an intensely worked horse is. Sure. So what kind of work would these horses be doing that were in this light to moderate category? Sure. So 
I'm speculating here because I don't actually remember what they said their specific exercise was, but I would imagine they were probably written for 30 to 45 minutes. They probably had a walk, jog, and lope component to that. Um, some, like if you go for lessons or a short ride like that. Um, so I would think they weren't hitting, again, as you mentioned, I like exercise. They weren't hitting a, a maximum heart rate here, but they were probably, I would guess with the heat, a little sweaty at the end. But, um, you know, I think of a super intensely ridden horse, like a racehorse or a three-day eventer. Um, those are horses that are working at high intensity. So a light to moderate exercise, you're probably working them out 30, 60 minutes, a large component walk trot with maybe a little bit of that canter lope thrown in. So are you trying to tell us, Dr. Smarsh, that maybe horses that aren't ridden that hard don't need the fancy electrolyte supplementation rounds? I'm going to be a scientist and say it depends. <laughs> no, you have to give an answer. So. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, again, you, this was five days. I'm assuming these are horses that were acclimated to Tennessee, right? And it wasn't like we suddenly shift them to a hot environment or we had a random heat wave in the middle of cooler days. Um, so think about how used to the environment your horse is and also are they normally ridden? You know, we talk about like weekend warriors or maybe you haven't been on horse in weeks and you jump on them. Um, so if these horses are custom, if your horse is accustomed to be ridden three or four times a week and it's kind of just their normal status quo that week, they might be okay. Again, if it's something more out of the ordinary or a dramatic change in the environment they're in, or the exercise that maybe we need to think about an electrolyte. And we always assume, you know, even a horse uh, consuming a balanced diet, we always recommend that they still have access to salt. Yeah. Um, so most likely in these conditions, again, yes, it's hot, but we're not doing anything crazy. They're, they're at least from this study, most likely fine. And it seems like the biggest takeaway was make sure they have adequate water because it definitely the temperature of the day there was an effect on how much water they drank. So one of the cheapest nutrients in your horse's diet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so just let them drink. That's always a, a good lesson. So, all right, good. So our low to moderate exercising horses maybe don't have to be spending hundreds of dollars on electrolyte supplementation. They'll probably be okay with just what we do. All right, Dr. Anderson, so um, the one that you picked, I know you have a particular interest in racehorses because you do some fun consulting at racehorse sales. So this one was right up your alley. So um, this was a study that looked at factors affecting birth weight in thoroughbred foals, and then they compared them across three countries. So that's kind of fun. So they compared them in Kentucky, which is us, United States, um, as well as the United Kingdom, and then Australia to see what actually was affecting birth weight. So tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting and, and actually it confirmed or, you know, re-strengthened some things that many of us have thought about. Um, but kind of, I thought some of the things were kind of interesting. So Luckily, they, like so many of these farms, do collect birth weight data and those types of things and weigh their horses quite regularly. So this was a study. They actually had over 3,000 horses data on th over 3,000, which if anybody knows horse studies, that's a ton. That's a lot. You don't have <laughs> anywhere close to those kinds of numbers. Um, so the first step that he reported, and I, I, this would be interesting to learn a little bit more detail about the management, 
But those foals over the average, both fillies and stud colts, um, were actually bigger in Kentucky than they were compared to the UK or Australia. And actually, when you compare the birth weights of those in Australia, they were sm the smallest ones between all the three. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. Okay. Um, but then, you know, they looked at some of the things that, and they kind of, you can even just group them together. And as what a lot of folks have thought in the past is, um, uh, the, the foals that he called them the prima paris mares, the, 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 or lay people will call them the maiden mares, okay? Most of the time, those foals were going to be smaller, um, particularly the younger that they were, okay? Then compared to mares that had, say, um, four or five or more foals, okay? Um, and it changed. And then also those mares foaling in the winter months, say in February, March, early in the year, they also had foals that were going to be a smaller birth weight compared to those with, with, that were foaling later. Um, you know, fillies were a little bit smaller than stetco. So those are things that we've seen, um, you know, in the past. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, really didn't see a whole lot of difference in the birth weight of if it was their first foal or their second foal. And then as they had more, they did, their birth weights did increase. Um, but one thing that I asked him about and thought was interesting is, you know, what, how did they, if they compared those weights of those foals when they were six months old and on to a year, and if those, if the gap closed, you know, if they were closer in age. And he said, yes, those prima pairs, um, pair, the, the maiden mares, Actually, um, those foals from then over time, they tended to catch up and be very similar. So, and he brought this out, it actually wasn't actually in the abstract, but he did bring this out that um, those foals that were smaller at birth weight over time did have fewer issues of OCD lesions mm -hmm. than those that were born larger. And that's something that many of us have, have thought about um, you know, with some of these big growthy foals having a few more um, developmental issues than maybe those that were a little bit smaller. So my take home message from this is like a lot of folks say, oh, they're not going to mess with those first, those maiden mare foals because they're just going to be small. They're never going to catch up. And it's like, no, think back on that because apparently um, from what he found is they might be smaller to start with, but they'll catch up. Um, they're going to end up being not that much difference and not significantly different in size um, than those foals from those mares that that are having you know that have had multiple foals. And you might end up with one that has a few um, fewer uh, developmental issues um, later on if they were born you know smaller and kind of had a, a more even growth curve. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. So I have uh, maybe we can do some science breakdowns here uh, for folks. So on the the primiparis mare, so again, for folks, that's the maiden mare. This is her first baby. Um, and so we've kind of known um, in the past, isn't it, a little bit of her uterine size? Um, so the uterus gets a little bigger after she's had a little bit, uh, or a little bit, after she's had more foals. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say so. And actually, you know, her maturity size also increases because when the smallest ones were from those mares that were falling at three and four, once they reached a little bit older, like six or seven, and having their first foal, then the gap was was not quite as significant. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a really cool study. I always like studies that have pictures um, with their results because you're like, oh yeah, I can get on board with that. And they did some embryo transfer work where they put the pony embryos and the thoroughbred yes. mares and then those yes. pony embryos got to grow to be bigger. They're like, oh, I could stretch out here. <laughs> so, right. Right. <laughs> so that was a really fun study. But the take home, so rather than saying, oh, hey, you know, we don't want the, the foal from the first mare, 
just because it's smaller over time, that's probably not going to matter. That's right. That's right. Over time, they should catch up and be the same. Just like those ponies falling out of a thoroughbred mare, they'll start off bigger. The genetics are still there for it to be a pony. So it probably doesn't end up being this monster thoroughbred kind of horse. It just right. starts out a little bit bigger because it had more room to grow in utero. So you have to remember the genetics, genetics are there. And so, yeah, they're only going to do so much. So I have another question. You may or may not know the answer to this. So I think that's interesting that our babies are bigger than in the United Kingdom and Australia. Do they, okay, so that wouldn't make sense. So I was going to ask, you know, do we breed earlier? But, but no, you said that earlier in the year they foal the the smaller the foal. In the UK, they basically breed the same as we do. Um, Australia, they're just flipped, you know, and so um, I don't think the time, I mean, we know that the time of year has some effect on them because foals, and he showed this, that are born in the winter months, say February, um, that they tend to be smaller. We've also known for years that a mare foaling later in the year has about a 10-day longer gestation length, so those foals are going to be a little bit bigger. Not to the point where a person has to be concerned about dystocia, those types of things, or the ones foaling in the winter months are not going to be developed. It's just they just it, it's just probably a, a factor of the photo period, the light, those kinds of things. Um, I don't think you're going to see, other than size, any negative developmental things from a foal born being born, like their lungs developed and those kinds of things, in the winter months versus one foaling in um, later in the summer. And so I'm not sure that you would see that. Because I don't think the UK that their, their foaling season, breeding season is that much different than us in the States. South America, or should I say um, Australia, it would be just flipped from what we are. Right, yeah. the Southern Hemisphere. So yeah. do you think, again, you may not know the answer to this, so I'm just pondering. Um, do you think that we in the United States, do we place more emphasis on young horse sales that drives trying to select for bigger babies? Um, probably depends a little bit the industry that you're in, and I think it. I think you do see some of that. You know, particularly like in the thoroughbred industry, they have all their big sales, um, yearling sales in the fall. Some of our stock horses also do have those kinds of sales, but there's a really big push in the thoroughbred thing of fall yearling sales because you, you get those, and then you take them on into you know to start their early um, training and early racing career. Because in to me in the industry now, there's more emphasis on the young racehorses. I think the stock horse world has shifted a little bit. We used to have a lot of two-year-old events, and now it's shifted more. There's some, but not to the degree that there used to be, and so um, it's a little bit different. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, and you know, a person's a person, and you go and you see this, you know, big, growthy, really good-looking yearling. Um, he's fat and this and that, he's going to be a little bit more attractive to some folks than one that's not maybe not quite so big and a little bit sunburn and a little bit, you know, ribby, maybe conditioned to score four. Um, that's just nature, especially of folks that maybe are not super experienced at looking at horses and looking through some of those cosmetic kinds of things that can change once you, you know, do some stuff with them. So, you know, and, and, and it would be good to know if you could, when you look at some of those horses, you know, how they've been managed, how they've been, been raised, you know, we know that if they're turned out on pasture, that's some of the soundest stuff that they can do, but you know, and so I know some of those places, they'll turn them out in the evening, so they're outside at night, so they don't get sunburned. And so there's a lot of different management kinds of things that folks will do to, to make them look the best that they can to get the, you know, the most money that they can from them. And then really the ultimate is, is you know, who's going to make the runners. Um, right. So, yeah, it's an interesting circle. 
Yeah, and I thought it was interesting, and, and you didn't bring this one up, but there was another, I think, the next study that was looking at body condition score of these uh, sales horses. And so I think people try to push them to be fatter just to do what you said. It's kind of to, to cover it up or gloss over things. And so literally all you're paying for then is the feed bill for that horse? <laughs> yeah, to some degree, yeah. I mean, and that one, it was done by the same group. Um, I mean, their bottom line, and they had a lot of horses, again, that they went through. I think there's like four or 5,000 that, that they were able to grab the records from. And, you know, they they kind of said that they do want them about a condition score six. So a six is okay. I mean, they're not they're not like the seven eights, the super fat horses. You know, they're a little bit on the heavier side. But on, and, and this study did not take those on into their race career, which would be the interesting next step. This is just more or less what was the average condition score of most of those horses, the sales, kind of where they were appeared to be the most marketable. The really interesting thing would be take it the next step to see how those horses, if they were X condition score at the yearling sales, how they produced on the track. And there's a lot of different variables that go on, yeah, sure. you know, with once they hit the hit into the training side of it. But, it, you know, those are interesting kinds of things that you can try to look at and compare. So it's almost like they need the same thing with like the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study with this massive cohort of information so you can track, you know, what does weight do to health outcomes over time. But yeah. us as the horse people have not done that. We have no horse cohort lifetime studies. So. Right, right. But it, it would you be know, good. Jockey Club, the third deal would be the closest because they do keep all kinds of stats. Um, you know, and some could go back and find how these horses were condition scored and evaluated when they were young um, and go through these. It would be a massive thing, a massive undertaking. But they do track the sale prices of those horses that were in various sales, you know, where they went on from there. The other step would to be add in, you know, what, what was their condition? What did they look like? You know, not just what they sold for, but what what were those cause what were the things, the makeup of those horses also to combine those kinds of things. So yeah. So future research, but we're going to again remind people if they're born a little bit small, as long as they're not malnourished or anything crazy, but like, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> so. okay. It's okay. Yep. All right, we're going to kick it back to um, Danielle. So I know this is going to be a popular one. So he, uh, talking about weight loss in horses. So exercise versus feed restriction. What is the most efficient weight loss option for your fat horse? And I know a lot of people don't want to do either one because they either have an angry horse or it's a lot of work. So tell us what is, what's the best option? Well, and you and Kathy kind of segued nicely talking about body kitchen scores and things. And so this group, uh, they looked over 10 weeks. What was the most, the best method if you needed to lose weight on your horse? Is it simply to only restrict feed? only do exercise or do both restrict feed and exercise your horse and they had um with this group of horses they're about 30 horses they all started the body condition score of about seven so on our scale of one to nine for horses they were in the chunky overweight category of, of seven um and so like i said it went for 10 weeks if they are in the feed restricted group they looked at what their digestible energy requirements were and only fed them at 85 percent of those requirements if they were exercised, they were exercised five times a week. Um, I believe they lunged them. Uh, it was about 20 minutes at a certain heart rate they were aiming for, then both a cool down, uh, a warm up, and a cool down. And so again, we had only you, you give them a diet only, or you exercise them only, or you do both together. And there was a control group as well. 
so at the end of the 10 weeks, um, yes, all the groups lost weight. Um, and I should say they looked at weight. They also looked at body condition score for the whole body. They looked at crusty neck scores. Uh, and then they also looked at um, if you do body condition score, and we're actually looking at several areas of the horse's body, right? So they also did track the score for every part of the horse's body as they went to. So they had the overall body condition score for the horse. But then like if I look at just the neck or just along the ribs, what is that score? So they all lost weight um, and they all did have their whole body body condition score reduced. But what was interesting was that um, with the exercise groups, so both exercise only and exercise plus feed restriction, those groups both had reductions in their crusty neck scores. Um, so either way, exercise that reduced their crusty neck score. And when they looked at some of the specific locations on the body and the body condition score for those areas, I believe it was around like the tail head and the shoulder. Again, um, exercise had more of an impact and than the non-exercise, even feed-restricted group. So the take-home message of this study was that, as you might expect, the exercise plus reduction in calories was the most effective. But actually, the exercise group with no reduction in calories was the next most effective um, because not only did they lose weight and improve their whole body body score, but exercise only also improved crusty neck score. And then some areas like around the tail head um, more so than only restricting diet. So if they only restricted their diet, they did lose weight, but they didn't have kind of the change in fat across the body that the exercise groups both had. And interesting because um, when we talk about horses that are, and these were all clinically healthy, these weren't horses that had any, any issues, but we always say, you know, if we're looking at the phenotype of fat deposition, it's the crusty neck and the tailhead adiposity leans us more towards horses at risk for uh, metabolic issues or insulin dysregulation, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and so theoretically then exercise increases muscle mass, right? I'm just going on a little tangent here. Yeah. Exercise also <laughs> increases glucose uptake. It's insulin independent for all of you folks out there that love your glucose uh, transporters. Um, and so, so, like, that is a really healthy or appropriate, right, for having sex for horses to actually be exercising that might actually have a little bit more impact. Yeah. Well, we know exercise will improve insulin sensitivity. So, like you're saying, and that's it's. It, I mean, you and I have some background in exercise. For, so for us, like, well, that makes perfect sense. But for the right. rest of you listening in, like this, it, this is the exercise is making, creating these changes in some of these hormones and other regulators of, again, the, the fat in the body. So it's creating a leaner looking animal than just diet restriction only, basically. So could you go back and then maybe reiterate for us again, what like the sheer volume of exercise these horses underwent, because I think it's always good for owners to know, is this something I can do or not do? Yes. So the way this group, I'll admit I'm looking at the abstract right now, so I have it phrased correctly, but the way they phrased what the horses were done was um, submaximal unridden exercise. So again, I believe they were lunged and they wanted them to work about approximately 150 beats per minute for their heart rate for 20 minutes. So our average adult horse heart rate at rest is around 36 beats per minute and maximal heart rate would be 200, 220. That a bit depends on the breed of the horse. And so 150, I mean, that's that's getting up there. That's again, on, in the exercise world, we're starting to think about 
shifting from aerobic to anaerobic type exercise. Um, so, you know, they're probably cantering at that, that okay. heart rate. They're, they're not just at a slow jog. They're, they are working. Um, so they wanted them at about 20 minutes of that heart rate. And then they had them also, you know, a warm up and a cool down. So I'm guessing there was probably about 30, 35 minutes total of exercise. And they did this five days a week for 10 weeks. Okay. So five days a week for 10 weeks, about 30 minutes. But um, I mean, is that the amount of time the average person wastes on social media? Pretty sure they waste more time on this. <laughs> <laughs> my phone tells me every Sunday. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> so we're offering a healthy alternative for both the horse and the human here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I really think that's important because... And I mean, this is nothing different from human medicine, right? I mean, like, this shouldn't be a surprise for everybody. Um, but there's so many of our horses that are essentially sedentary, right? It's only voluntary activity. And that that's where we can get into weight issues with them. And it just becomes, you know, a big issue. And I know when you try to restrict just diet, they just get real angry with you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I think they also, I mean, they didn't study study this, but I'm sure mentally those horses felt a little better that were out there stretching their legs and moving. Um, so yeah, with, with obesity and overweight horses being a big issue in many parts of the world, many states, this has been documented pretty regularly. Um, it is good to know this information on how, how you could, if you need to have your horse lose weight, what you can do. Okay. All right. I think these have been some really good little research summaries. Again, our goal is to show people how our recommendations come about. Um, so if you go to a workshop from uh, Dr. Smarsh and she's like, no, no, you should exercise your horses. You can't be like, but but why? There's no, there's no data. <laughs> so now she can say there is. And if you go to Dr. Anderson to, or go with her to a thoroughbred sale and she's like, no, no, buy the smaller one at a body condition score of five. You'll still be okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Anything else that we missed or uh, things that you guys want to share from your time at our fantastic equine science symposium? I was just going to say, I'm assuming we're going to post the abstracts in the show notes if people want to look these up and... Yeah, There's absolutely. They're not very long to read. <laughs> yeah, no, you can. Uh, and if you want to help a kid out, you could send me the abstract links and then I'll just pop sure. them in. <laughs> so, <laughs> but definitely for, like I said, for people that really want to read um, those, and hopefully these abstracts will become published papers too. So you get the long form um, and all the details that they can't fit into the, you know, 500 characters we're limited to or whatever that is. So. <laughs> Yeah, we just get a lot of great new information when we're there. And so, yeah, hopefully these are pretty um, useful to everyone to kind of put some of the stuff that we've been working um, on to practice. Okay. All right. And I think our next uh, next couple episodes, we're still going to be hitting some of the highlights of the research world um, before we go back to our regularly scheduled program of how horses injure themselves. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us today. And this has been another episode of our Tech Box Talk, Horse Stories with a Purpose. Bye.